Extra strong. Roman concrete. Fully hydraulic. Ice natural. connections. It's the structural engineering podcast. Hello, welcome to the structural engineering podcast. I'm Max. And I'm Zach. And this week we're doing a little in-between episode. I don't know, this is 21.5 maybe. Um, we want to do an update on the Ridgecrest earthquake. We had the opportunity to talk with Maria Mohammed, uh, SE. She is on the CEOSC board. And she was up at Ridgecrest and Trona shortly after the earthquake inspecting some homes and stuff. So we had a, a cool opportunity to talk with her. Yeah, it was nice that we had, you know, Alex's opinion to go through what he saw and what his feelings were. But now to get the opinion of a licensed structural engineer, I'm pretty excited for you guys to hear what we got. Yeah, and unsurprisingly, they're, they're pretty similar, similar stories from walking around up there. So we'll talk with her for a little bit. And then right afterwards, we're going to come back. And I'm going to talk about earthquakes in Japan. There, I think, is a lot of talk about how much better Japan is at handling earthquakes. Like, you know, it's like the, uh, the German engineering or the Italian design. This Japanese, they know how to handle an earthquake. But I uh, figured we'd look into it ourselves. So that's coming up next. All right, you want to say your tech tip? Good point. Um, <laughs> You're going to have to do some editing. I know. And also, let's get a tech tip in there. So this is one I'm honestly not 100% certain on. And I, we were thinking about it last week, and I'm, I'm throwing it out there. I feel pretty good about it. Throw it out there, but man. This is, this is seismic mass of snowdrifts. Almost always, this is not going to be a big deal. But as you may know, when the snow load is over 30 PSF, you've got to consider 20% of your weight and your seismic mass. But what about snowdrifts? The code, the way it's worded is, is strictly that if the snow load is beyond 30 PSF. So I don't think there's any, there's, I, there's no reason that you wouldn't have it on the drift if the drift exceeds 30. What do you think? Right. Oh, I, told, I totally agree. And I think there's some really good examples of, uh, of times where, you know, it could be quite substantial and, um, we were kind of talking about canopies and man, you put snow drift out on something like that. I mean, you're even, you know, this, the percentage of snow drift that you have to consider is exactly. going to be, it's going to be greater than the whole weight of the thing of the canopy. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Canopies tend to be very light, you know, and if you throw a canopy on the edge of a, of a huge warehouse, you have 200 foot of runway to collect a leeward wind drift it can easily be 90 PSF. I could see, you know, I could see someone arguing that it's not life safety, but what do canopies usually cover? <laughs> cover the door, man. They cover the exit. If I can't cover get the out? exit. And that's something, that, I mean, a little off topic, a tiny bit, but not much. But in all the earthquakes that were happening, or the big earthquake that happened in Alaska here this last year, that was one of the biggest things that was happened was the uh, exits were blocked. Stru the structures were okay. They didn't go, they didn't, they didn't collapse, but a lot of veneers failed. Uh, specifically brick veneers and landed in front of doors and blocked exit ways. So, I, yeah, it matters. Yeah, yeah. It, so, if a canopy come down, that's that's a that's a lot of a lot of weight. <laughs> yeah. So get uh, get your drift sizing mass on your canopies. Probably. <laughs> I'm gonna start doing it now that I thought of it. I don't. Let us know what you guys think. Yes, please do. And bonus tech tip: Don't forget, parapets do not screen for snow drifting on things underneath them so if you have a parapet up high that's collecting windward drift you don't get to remove leeward drift from something below i think that's in the commentary but that's in there a little little tip to pass on to everyone <laughs> all right well let's talk with maria so uh 
a couple people from my office um, and I went to Ridgecrest um, mm-hmm. this Sunday after the earthquake. And um, EERI, I'm, I'm not sure if you've heard of them, the Earthquake Engineering Research Institute, they had put together a clearinghouse where basically all um, like structural engineers, geologists, geotechnical engineers could just come together and like exchange information. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it was pretty cool. And uh, so we arrived to the clearinghouse and then um, met up with a few people who um, were planning on also doing reconnaissance and um, got information pe- from people who have done reconnaissance the day before mm-hmm. um, on Saturday. Um, and then we basically just decided to drive around and um, gather as much information as we ca- we could. Uh-huh. Um, so we started in... Ridgecrest. Um, Ridgecrest is a fairly new town. Um, like, I would say most of the homes were built in the 80s. Um, oh, nice. You you won't find like really old older homes, which you mm-hmm. would think would be susceptible to earthquakes. But there wasn't really like a substantial amount of damage that um, you would expect from a city who just experienced a 7.1 magnitude earthquake, <laughs> you know? And I assume it's mostly very low-rise, you know, stick frame construction, typically? Yes, um, very light frame, um, uh-huh. single-family residential. Uh, there were a couple hotels, kind of like holiday type of hotels, just yeah. uh, two, three stories tall, um, but very low-rise community. I would say most of the structure in Ridgecrest would be like a low period type of structure. So there wasn't anything significant that we noticed um, in Ridgecrest. We did, we did end up going to the movie theater, which I, they, I think they only have one movie theater and it was, the owner wasn't there. So we didn't have access to go inside, Uh, but we were just curious because it tended to have, really tall masonry walls around the perimeter. And uh, it looked like it had some non-structural damage when we could, from what we could see through the windows. And if I recall correctly, I think they, um, some other engineers were able to go inside the following day and see that there was also like some ceilings have fallen down in certain parts of the building. But outside of, you know, like a standalone instance, there wasn't like a significant extent of damage. Interesting. In did you get to go to Trona as well? We did. So um, once we did reconnaissance in Ridgecrest, we went to Inyokern, actually. So Inyokern is slightly west of Ridgecrest, just because we were curious to see if there was any damage. And we didn't notice anything significant in Inyokern either. So we then headed to Trona. Trona was a very different case, and I think it might have to do with the age of the town. Mm-hmm. It's a very old town. Most of the single-family homes, you can tell, were built in the 40s and 50s, if not earlier. Well, the photos I saw um, look like there's a lot a lot more masonry in Trona. Yes, yes. Um, a lot of unreinforced masonry in Trona. The, most of the single-family homes had uh, brick chimney or um, like concrete masonry 
chimney. They had a lot of like unreinforced uh, CMU block site walls. And the way that the town is also located right above what used to be a lake, I believe, there was a, quite a substantial amount of lateral spreading. You can see cracking in the um, in the road, buckling of the sidewalk, like one part of the sidewalk would have either like rotated or slightly offset from the adjacent uh, block of sidewalk. And most of the homes we drove by in Trona had some type of damage to their chimneys. Either the chimney um, like completely broke off or peeled away from um, from the home. So uh, there were a couple instances where it had fallen off of the roof, like onto the wow. ground. Um, yeah. A couple where it fell through the roof. Uh, so some type of like consistent damage throughout um, the chimneys that we observed. Okay. Um, Trona seemed to have experienced uh, more damage than Ridgecrest did, and yeah. I would say most of it has to do with the age of the town, age of construction. Okay. Is the damage uh, less than you would expect overall? I mean, based on the magnitude, it's it's pretty high, right? But it was a little bit deeper. And from what I found, the uh, acceleration was about 0.4% uh, gravity. I'm actually surprised that the ground acceleration of 0.4G, well, the ground acceleration was only 0.4G for a 7.1 really? magnitude earthquake. Yeah. Um, and... I, I, I hope geologists or geotechnical engineers are trying to explain that. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not exactly sure what to expect as far as acceleration, but, you know, looking at Northridge or something was like 1.8 G and that's a lower yeah. magnitude, way closer to the yeah. surface. But I mean, this is not, not my uh, expertise by any means. Yes. <laughs> so we're kind of looking <laughs> at um, the other discipline of earthquake engineering to help explain <laughs> this to us. But given given that most of the structures in Ridgecrest and Trona were low period structures, and it just, having a high period earthquake avoided what would have been a lot of damage, yeah. I think. Um, in, in in terms of um, like I guess trying to quantify is this the type of damage you would expect for this type of magnitude earthquake? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really know if this earthquake is a good conversation to have. I mean, a good example to have that conversation, um, mainly because the population of the towns that were close to the earthquake were relatively small. Yeah. Um, You know, the number of buildings that experienced that level of shaking were very small. If that type of earthquake, a 7.1 magnitude earthquake, is to occur, say, in a big metropolitan area like L.A. um, Totally different story. Exactly. Exactly. It's it's just it's. It's difficult to apply that experience to a different location. Yeah, and it is important to also note, I think you mentioned earlier in our conversation that you can't really design something to be damage proof. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also like the understanding the risk that we are designing to. Um, The current building standard would design to what would be life safety standard which mostly applies to making sure that the building survives the earthquake um, mm-hmm. and not necessarily the building remains functional after an earthquake. Absolutely. And the, um, the damage you saw, does that sort of fit? I mean, there were no collapses, correct? This is just, I mean, cracks in masonry, but 
nothing fell down. Yeah, like right? I would, okay. there there wasn't really like a, a, a house that pancaked. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the house that probably had the chimney fall through the roof, mm-hmm. I would advise the residents not to just go inside immediately until they take the chimney out to make sure that there isn't a falling hazard or anything. Certainly. But there isn't anything that you would say is like a complete collapse. Well, that's that's good to hear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Max, that was awesome listening to Maria there. I think she has some really good points and and you know, just talking about the period of the earthquake and the structures and being low rise. I think it's it's really interesting and makes so much sense of why these didn't have a lot of damage uh, to the structures. Um, I think there is, like kind of she said, there's a lot of answers that uh, we need to get from geotechnical engineers to understand what's going on with the soil. Yeah, it's pretty cool. If you are listening and you are a geotechnical engineer, please reach out. We'd love to have you on the show. I think that's kind of one of the next, uh, I'd say probably the next person we're going to be looking for to get on the podcast is geotech. Well, Let's uh, debunk this Japanese stuff or bunker. Figure it out. <laughs> I'm only designing with the Japanese code from now. <laughs> I uh, yeah, I only use Japanese steel. It's better. Yeah, well, I mean, let's let's go through some of, of what they they require differently than the U.S. and where we're similar in places. I think one of the first places we can talk about is. Um, the analysis procedure of the two mm-hmm. different codes. So yep, yep. I, I would assume everyone listening is fairly uh, familiar with how the U S code works. There's different analysis procedures and, and there's, there's times where you can use, use them and there's times where you can't use them. And you can pretty much always use ELF except for one case. And yeah, um, exactly. And then the Japanese code code has like a very interesting, like two part analysis of it. So I, I think it's pretty interesting. So like, you go through and design your structure using this first phase design. And this uh, one is allowable stress. I like how it's kind of broken up. Like this is elastic only allowable stress design. Yeah, totally. So you're, you, you, you know exactly how you're looking at the structure and, and how it's acting in that manner. And then you go to the, the second phase design, which is nonlinear pushover, nonlinear time history analysis, and is, is usually required to check the ultimate lateral strength. And do you have to do time history analysis on every building, it seemed like? I don't know. This this paper we both read, I mean, I didn't see that, that it was no, but it, it appeared that you run these this set of three earthquakes, the golden trio on every structure. So it says for the second design phase is used when it's needed to check lateral system overstrength, usually nonlinear static or dynamic analysis uh, is, is required. The second phase design is, is not required for buildings up to 31 meters in height. Mm, Okay. So you're not talking a very tall building, uh, five, six story building and beyond. You have to do the second phase, uh, of analysis and design. I mean, in, in many ways, the code is, is pretty similar. If you're looking at spectrum response, They've kind of got two two phases to this though too. They they allow a higher damping ratio, and in their there are two phases which you mentioned before. So they design for you know this allowable stress. They're designing to a moderate earthquake, and so their buildings have to survive with minimal damage in the elastic range, very low story drift, right? So like 
pretty much nothing is going to happen um, with a moderate earthquake. Then they have a separate earthquake, a severe earthquake, and that's what they're designing their, their higher buildings for. But the, the spectrum response looks very, very similar to what we're used to. Oh, yeah. One thing I think is really interesting is the soil and site classifications for Japan and the U.S. I, I don't know about you, Max, but through all this studying it and kind of research, is, it seems like the U.S. has a lot of options on yeah. about everything. And, yes. and the, you know, the Japanese code had like two to three for each category. You know, we have A, B, C, D. Uh, you know, we have a lot of, of site classifications Japanese code has three and, and there's not, you know, a big discrepancy throughout this, of, throughout the country because it's, you know, it's a, it's a small, small island. Country. Yeah. It's probably small much country. more homogenous as far as terrain. Um, so it makes sense. So I, yeah, I think it totally makes sense to not have as much as the U S code. It does. Yeah, but you're absolutely right. I do like, uh, their soil type classifications. They're much more like, they sound very scientific. Uh, so it was mainly from the tertiary or era or earlier, um, or alluvium, mainly consistent, consisting of organic or other soft soil. Makes ours seem blunt, soft, less soft. Right. They're trying to be way too generic in our code. Um, yeah. They talk about in here importance factors. So they also discuss the classification of buildings in the U.S. We have from a category one risk category where it's super low hazard to human life to risk category four, which is designed for essential facilities. In the seismic world, you increase your load by 50% on those structures. There's really nothing like that in Japan. Yeah. They don't classify a building as one you know, of, of four different elements so I, I thought that was kind of interesting there was no classifications for buildings based on occupancy in, in the japan seismic code yeah i don't know what to make of that i uh i'm not i'm not sure either <laughs> i just um, it was an interesting fact yeah yeah we'll leave it at that i uh i do want to throw in there japan has a lot of earthquakes so i read that they have around a thousand a day that you can feel so for us, that's like over magnitude 2.5. They have a different scale. So if you see something, you know, a Japanese earthquake that's above a five on their scale, that's huge. That's like a seven. It's, it's more like the Mercalli scale, I guess. Um, so it doesn't, not totally parallel. It's more proportional to the damage that occurs than the actual magnitude of the quake. But a thousand a day that you can feel, that's nuts. I got some numbers to, to be proportional here. So it, I found in 2005, they had 130,000 earthquakes. California got about 10,000. So, you know, 13 times more. Yeah, and let's see. So California, for ones you could feel, they get a, a couple hundred a year above a magnitude three and 15 to 20 above magnitude four. So, I mean, in order of magnitude higher, at least on how many earthquakes you could feel. So I think... The public perception also, which you talked about a couple of times, is everybody knows that earthquakes are a big deal in Japan. So having your building designed for them is not a push for any, you know, it's just how it is. My, my other thought with that too, is with that high occurrence rate of earthquakes, and, and they have quite some substantial earthquakes too, I, I, I would like to think that they also are thinking this on an economic scale. You know, with that many earthquakes, they can't be rebuilding. Yeah, part of probably what drives a lot of their seismic code is is economics, and uh, I think 
you you brought this up previously, not on the show, but you know they have thousands of base isolated structures. Where in the U.S. we have nothing close to that. Yeah, hundreds. And so to me, that that's driving. Maybe I'm reaching here, but to me, that that is like okay. They they're trying to be really efficient with their structures economically to not have to rebuild. Um, not not just for loss of life, but I think uh, the e- economic gain of having structures, you know, in the U.S., uh, it's performance-based structures or design structures, which, you know, you look a lot more at economics of that building. You don't want to take a big skyscraper and then have it go through a seismic event. It yields and you have to tear the whole <laughs> thing down, right? That's a lot of money that makes zero sense. Yeah. So I would I would like to imagine that Japan is thinking in that same direction with how they're they push to do base isolated structures. Yeah, yeah. They're definitely progressive there. I mean, uh, there's this great paper that compares uh, U.S. and seismic design procedures specifically for base isolation. And they mentioned that the in Japan, the board that reviews each of these projects is just the same. Well, in the U.S., the process and review members changes for every single project. You know, when, when we're submitting something to the building official, if you're in a different location, it's a, it's a new building official. And they might have never seen a seismic isolated project. And in Japan, they just make that way easier by going to the same group of people every single time. And, yeah, from, from what I read, it, it's it's a lot easier. Um, less strict uh, guidelines. We require very high tolerance for the amount of deflection on a seismic isolated system. So what I mean, I guess, is a very high recurrence for the deflection that that system needs to see. Japan has it a little bit differently, I guess. Um, we look at the recurrence of the earthquake very similarly. So a one in 2% chance in 50 years or about a one in 2,500 year probability for the design of the structure, but for the design of the base isolation, they do a one in 500 year, so a lower event. And then you're allowed to do a safety factor on top of that, but it just is a little less restrictive for the everyday earthquake, which makes it easier to handle. Should we wrap up Japan? This is a mini-sode after all. I think that kind of hits some of the bigger differences, at least as far as I understand from this one paper. Um, We certainly didn't get too deep into this, but we just wanted to get a feel for for the reality of, of how much better they are than us. They're better. So in conclusion, what do you think? In conclusion, they're more prepared for a lower occurrence earthquake. Um, I get the feel that we're on the same page for the 1 in 2,500 year event, 2% probably in 50 year. Um, but yeah, for the everyday quake, I think that they are in a better position. And they get everyday quakes. We don't. So it's, it's hard to really compare them side by side. Do we need to have that level of stand? I mean, it is, it's too costly to design everything to stand up to a quake that doesn't happen every day. I, I totally agree with you. The, the, yeah, the occurrence of which their earthquakes are happening is so much higher than what we're seeing in the U.S. So it makes sense that their code is, is a lot different on what, what that occurrence interval is. And, but I, yeah, I don't think necessarily their buildings are better than the ones in the U.S. for the you know, like-to-like building. To close this out, I was I I did some research on st- structural monitoring for yeah. seismic events, and I thought it was really interesting. In Japan, they have structural monitoring on everything. Yeah, like they're like compared to the U.S., it's like everything. In the U.S., I believe it, it compared to L.A., the skyscrapers in L.A. only have only three percent of them have structural monitoring for seismic events. 
and that just blew my mind. Like the monitoring is not that expensive, but can yeah, do it's such a low so much. Computer. Hey, I wonder how much useful information you truly can. I mean, you can get the building's acceleration for research. I think it's great. I don't know. Is it limited? I'm not sure. I don't know enough about it, I guess, but it'd be nice to see it more places. All right, guys, thanks for joining us this week. As always, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, email, send us emails. You guys reach out to us a lot. We love it. The, co- the conversations are, are wonderful. More topics, comments, anything you got. And it means so much to us if you share this with your friends, your colleagues, anybody you think that would be interested in this, please share it. We'll talk to you later. See you.